Hey, Tom, how are you? <laughs> Great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, my friend. Good. Are you still in Cusco or have you returned home? I am still in Cusco at the moment. Okay, great. Well, let me put a little introduction here. Ladies and gentlemen, if you uh, tuned in last week, and even if you didn't, if you want to uh, kind of catch us where we are, we did a wonderful podcast on cancel culture. And uh, my guest is Brian Francis Culkin, who is a, an author of numerous books. About What are you up to now, Brian? About 15? Um, I've written 16 books now, yes. Okay, 16 books, everything from, uh, you know, books about Trump to uh, philosophy to uh, globalization, gentrification, uh, the death of Boston, or believe uh, Boston, it, there was no such thing as Boston, um, uh, it, on and on. So, and never mind that, also a great filmmaker. In fact, that's how we met. We met at an Apple store when you were in the process of doing uh, films about uh, basketball and its transition from an urban sport to whatever it is now, and uh, and boxing, etc. So welcome. Uh, let's have some fun. Okay, Tom. And uh, sorry about that. Didn't know we were going to have that problem. Okay. Uh, so uh, last time we 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 left it off, we were pretty energized, and sorry that we had to. Uh, uh, drop it after 45 minutes, but we certainly had the juices going on uh, the, the epidemic of uh, the pandemic of cancel culture that remains after the pandemic of COVID. Um, so do, do you want you have some ideas on where you want to pick up? No, well, I mean, I, I, I think that's a good way to talk about it because cancel culture is, it does have a, a viral dimension. It does have a a dimension that's related to a, a plague. You know, the book that I just finished was on the, the French anthropologist, René Girard. The name of the book is called René Girard and COVID-19. I, I just finished writing it. And Girard, even though he, you know, cancel culture is a relatively new term, but in many ways, Girard's work was uh, um, centered around cancel culture, you know, but, and, but in Girardian terms, he would call it sacrifice. And cancel culture is, a, is a, basically a form of digital lynching or digital sacrifice that takes place when a, a group of some kind, a, a, you know, a, a Twitter feed, uh, some kind of political or uh, social organization at, attempts to discharge somehow its own internal contradictions, its own internal problems, its own, you know, resentments, just basically emotional pathologies. And the way that it does that, of course, is by finding some kind of scapegoat or victim or, or somebody that they can find as the blame for their own internal contradictions. And this absolutely has a viral nature because it grows itself like a virus. It reproduces itself like a virus. And it, and it really spreads like a virus because, you know, what happens a lot is that, you know, just take something like Twitter. When, when somebody is spontaneously single, singled out for quote unquote cancellation, you know, maybe they did something stupid. You know, for instance, you know, the, the commentator from CNN who was caught masturbating on Zoom about six or seven months ago. I, he just came back to CNN yesterday and, and I happened to watch his kind of interview come back where he publicly apologized. But when that happened in September 
or October, whenever it was, he was subject to, and, and of course, what he did was totally ridiculous and completely disgusting and completely wrong. I'm not in any way, shape or form defending that. But what I'm saying is that the spontaneous nature of cancel culture, here we have this guy who does something completely inappropriate, completely, um, you know, wrong, I would say. And then all of a sudden he is spontaneously elected and two days, the entire Twitter community does a kind of pile on in this person where, and, and what's really interesting is that what's viral about it is that it brings people in, in the sense that there were people who were, you know, torturing this guy, digitally torturing this guy that had no idea who he was, had absolutely no idea about his political affiliation, his history as a legal commentator, nothing at all, but they were brought in because cancel culture has a viral or a, a plague-like dimension where it brings people in to discharge and what people saw and, and what people really saw in that instance. And again, we can pick out any number of cultural moments. This has happened over the past, you know, five or six years. I'm just happened to, to use this because I just happened to watch a clip of this guy talking on, on YouTube today. Um, but basically, all these people who do nothing about him, what it, it gave them the opportunity to, to like basically get on Twitter and just kind of unload in this person. And by doing that, it gives them the opportunity to think that they can release all of their own emotional toxicity and their own problems and project it onto the scapegoat. So that's that's what is really when we're talking about cancel culture and how it has a viral dimension, what we're talking about is how it infects people with the really the false idea, because, of course, it doesn't work. But it's this idea that they can somehow cleanse themselves through this ritual act of cancellation or scapegoating, which is the biblical term of the same phenomenon. I mean, can't cancel cancel. This is the problem that I have with a lot of right-wing commentators when they're trying to interpret, when they're trying to interpret cancel culture in terms of, you know, 2021 or just, you know, just the past four or five years since it's, since it's become a, a thing, you could say, where, when it's, when when it's been given a name, that it's a, that it's a new thing, that cancel culture is somehow this unique thing that emerged from the intersection of identity politics you know, the liberal media ecology and social media. I mean, this is ridiculous. Cancel culture is biblical. It's scapegoating. It's, it's, it's literally Old Testament stuff. And the, the, the function of scapegoating is to cleanse the community. That's what scapegoating is. It's like the community is allowed to put all of their own, quote unquote, sins, all of their own troubles onto the scapegoat and then either kill or expel the scapegoat from the community. Thus, the scapegoat purges the internal dysfunction of the community. So, I mean, cancel culture is not new. It's old. It's very old. It's biblical. So that's, but, but still, though, it does have a viral element that is very, very related, you could say, to the viral nature of technology and certainly to the viral nature of COVID. Uh, which which is a which is a pure virus, which is a biological virus, but you know when I think it is, I guess the point that I'm making is that it is helpful to think of cancel culture in 
a viral metaphor in this kind of plague terminology, because it certainly has that dimension of contagion where it can infect people that don't know they're being infected with it. That's what I would say. Well, and again, uh, you know, it's funny because as you were describing, I, I had images of those biblical movies, the Roman movies, the, you know, I'm seeing the Colosseum, I'm seeing people taking pleasure in, you know, animals eating people and, you know, the emperor giving his thumbs up or thumbs down to whether somebody should live and everybody jumping in sure. on this taking, having no empathy for the victim. Exactly. But, uh, caught up in, in you know, I, 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 I guess I have to, I had an experience back in like 1970 in Boston. My uncle had uh, tickets to the Bruins season passes. And one night, you know, and uh, I was watching a game and a fight broke out. And, you know, you see fights all the time. But this fight escalated for some reason. It was between Montreal and the Bruins. And all of a sudden, you know, I saw people, you know, cheering, you know, the Bruins on, hoping that, you know, their player would get the upper hand. But then... All of a sudden, somebody got a bloody nose or something. And I was shocked that everybody, there was a frenzy that went out of control. And all I could yeah. think of was going back to this, how animalistic this was. Sure. They saw sure. they saw blood and they were they were entertained by it. They were they were thrilled by it and they wanted more sure. blood. And sure, so sure, sure, sure. this is this is extremely intrinsic, but I think you're making the, what you're bringing out is I don't think when that in the sense of history we've ever seen the ability to have it fester and grow like you said like the virus well, that's, because of that's, that's what's unique about it like what's what's unique I mean violence has always been contagious it was con it was contagious in uh, indigenous cultures around the world and and by the way indigenous cultures around the world had all kinds of mechanisms to put the brakes on spiraling violence and um and to a point and this is a point that i make in the renee girard book i mean in a way what's paradoxical about twitter and social twitter in particularly but social media social media in general is that social media even though it is the primary channel for cancel culture because all of us have a you know, a social media account and a smartphone in our pocket in which we can engage with people around the world through computational power and satellites and out, whatever algorithms and all, all, all the different architecture that's embedded into, into uh, the networked economy. But what people don't fail to, yes. So, so, so yes, social media is absolutely a, um, it, it disseminates the logic of cancel culture, whether it wants to or not. But, you know, one of the things that social media does that people don't realize is that it prevents precisely what you're talking about in the sense that people don't start literally beating the hell out of each other. They just take it out on, you know, writing mean tweets and, you know, doing, you know, making memes and, and doing all those things. So that's one of the things that social media does. It, it redirects violence away from the flesh, away from the material community and inscribes it into you know computational language and and uh and memes and all the different things that we associate with social media culture but i think though at some point that like the dam will not be able to hold and i think we we saw a taste of that last summer with the protests that emerged after the george floyd incident 
accident uh, where, you know, act actually violence hit the streets. So the paradox of 21st century capitalism and globalization, I think, is that it's an incredibly violent arrangement, you could say, of productive forces and technology and and just the way we, we interact as global consumers, you know, we're disconnected from our local communities. The, the accent is put on personal productivity versus spirituality and our family relationship. You know, just all of the, the, the checkpoints of what globalization does to both the human subject and to local community. So what's interesting, though, is at the same time it does all this stuff, it tries to contain that violence by making it virtual, by not allowing it to, you know, it, it, it kind of expels it to the third world where like, yes, like a, 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 a mine in the Congo is incredibly violent or whatever, like these outposts of the capitalist world order. But inside and in like, you know, suburban America, you know, no one even talks to each other. So instead you have these like random spree shootings and these kind of incidents of violence. I, get, I guess the point that I'm getting at is that at some point, the architecture and the computational power that basically mediates the world we live in, eventually it's not gonna be able to contain all of the frustration and anger and you know, latent violence that people have living in the system. And at some point, cancel culture is going to leave Twitter feeds and hit the streets. And that's something that I think is, is very evident, I think. And I think most people, you know, you, you don't need a sociology degree to know that. It's, it, it's pretty obvious that's going to happen at some point. Um, you can only... Well, it, 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 right. And, yeah, and, and it did happen last summer. I mean, it did. It did In happen fact, last summer, but I think what happened last summer is nothing compared to what potentially could happen. You know, I think that was, sure, that was an outburst after a specific pretty horrifying event that happened in Minneapolis. But the point that I'm getting at is that at some point, it's not gonna be necessarily just related to a singular event. It's gonna be related to the entire network of the abstract system itself. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I'm observing, I grew up in a very violent part of um, Boston and, you know, just to some days to make it to the store and back with the groceries and the change was a military mission and lucky to make it. So, you know, and I saw lots of the good old days. Oh, yeah. My God. <laughs> you know, excitement, adrenaline at every step. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, with that, I developed a certain sense or a street sense, you know, that carries through sure. to this day. I'm always alert. I'm always listening. Um, no matter where I am driving or whether sure. I'm in a city. Now, and, you know, we're and, and where I am down here, you, you, you have to have that always. You know what I mean, always. in South America, I'm I'm not necessarily it's, it's not as bad as what you're describing in 19, 1950s and 1960s Roxbury. But you, you do have to have your wits about you in most places in the world in, you know, in gentrified urban America and suburban America that, you know, for lack of a better term, that those street smarts have been basically stripped from the community because everything's oh, online. And what did we say? There's, there's, there's such a lack what did, of in, intimacy with, with, with your neighbor um, that you don't need that, but you know, you definitely need that down here. That's for sure. Well, and, 
what did we see in South Boston? We both witnessed this, is that sense of bringing that sense of comfort and safety that the you know transient workers, the intellectual workers, when they, when they came to Boston, were very relaxed about putting buds in their ears and heading out onto the street to run uh, or whatever. And, you know, and, and even ignoring the crosswalks. I mean, they, they just uh, didn't grow up with, you know, and run right into the middle of the crosswalk, not looking to see if a vehicle was coming or anything. And to me, that was just like, how do you shut that sense off in the inner city? And I think that there was an actual incident of a, a murder early in the morning where a gal went to get her, um, you know, go to the ATM and she was murdered. And I would bet she had on her buds and was not, you know, aware that there was somebody, some, uh, you know, danger coming. And so, and what I want to say is what I noticed last year in the streets, when all of the energy was up, you not only had those who were interested in uh, violence and, and uh, you know, burning the city and tipping cars over and, and looting, you had that element, but you also had this suburban uh, element, these, these young gals and guys who took to the cause and they were willing to take to the streets and they had no problem taunting the police. Now, you know, <laughs> growing up in the inner city, that's one thing you learned never, ever to do is to taunt well, the police. That's, that's another interesting feature of contemporary American life in the sense that I think people confuse um, legitimate critique of certain elements of, of American policing. And, and there are, there's plenty of room for critique, for critique of the racial history of American policing and, and, and a lot of other things. They confuse that with the idea of the police itself. And that is somewhat dangerous because, you know, what's paradoxical about the discourse of whatever you want to call it, neo neoliberalism or identity politics or, or this kind of, um, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly know what we would call it as a discourse, but like they, it's almost as if what we're seeing now in America is that like the criminals are the good guys and the cops are the bad guys. And I don't mean that, I mean yep. that in like a very general way. And that is very dangerous. That is extremely dangerous because when you start doing that, you're, and, and again, that is a, an element of the overall drive of cancel culture. It's distorting identity. It's, it's, it's making left, left, right, and right, left, and boys, girls, and girls, boys. It's, 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 it's rupturing all stable identity. And when you start saying, you know, criminals are innocent and the cops are bad in a general way, that is very, very different, very, very different than making a specific, you know, intellectual critique about the history of American policing. Those are two totally different things. And those things are being conflated right now in a very dangerous way because, you know, you don't want to live in a society where there are no, where, where there's no law, you know, you don't want to live in a society where it's a free for all. That is a recipe for talk about cancellation. That's a, that's a Hobbesian type of situation of a war of all against all. So that's, that's something that's also part of the, the thrust of cancel culture, this distortion of identity, this, and, 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 you know, the distortion of identity is, is brought forth by this surplus of desire 
that's always being generated by our consumer system. So that is a, I mean, that is, cr- I mean, to, 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 to say in a general way, the cops are the bad guys and the criminals, I mean, that's, that's dangerous stuff, man, really dangerous. And what's really interesting is that position it is. has been taken up by, you know, people who call themselves intellectuals. And that's a, that's a, I mean, that's the, that's, I, I, I don't even know what that is. That's, that's like a, 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 something that a, I mean, even children know that the cops are the good guys. And, you know, when, when cops, when, when kids play cops and robbers, kids just know that the robbers are the bad guys. And of that's course right. they are the bad guys. That's right. And, uh, and again, what, what, what struck me was, uh, again, trend, seeing what I saw from the, um, you know, immigration of suburban, mostly predominantly females who grew up in very safe places and picked, they knew why they picked Southie, you know, I mean, they have, you know, leftist and neoliberal ideas about race and the underdog and everything else. Yet they chose an all white neighborhood, virtually an all white neighborhood to settle into because they knew it was safe. And Southie, in spite of the, you know, Whitey and all of the gangs and part of what Whitey and brought to South Boston was this sense of policing by, you know, by their own. I mean, that all emerged too during busing when you had the vigilantes, you know, if the police weren't got enough protection, the people, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing. You know what I mean? But I, you know, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it just, it, but I'm saying they, they, they immigrated there because they knew that there was safety. But then to think that they're protected, you know, they've got some invisible shield around them that they can, you know, an incident like the George Floyd thing to take to the streets and then not just on protest, but to well, see a cop to taunt him and you know, go right up to him and scream. It's like, who knows if that cop did anything wrong ever in his career. Sure, 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 he sure. is now the scapegoat. Sure, 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 sure. Well, I mean, like scapegoating is a, you know, and so, I mean, so, scapegoating, so, scapegoating is a process that happens on multiple different levels to multiple people. And, you know, I mean, George Floyd, I mean, George Floyd was a scapegoat in many ways. I mean, he, he was a scapegoat. And then, so what, what you want to do, and this is kind of the point is that you want to generate some kind of, consciousness some kind of social consciousness that ends that phenomena of scapegoating like you i don't know if you can ever end it on a collective level but what you want to do is end it in your own life where you stop scapegoating right that's what you want to do you want to generate a a higher level of whatever you want to call it spiritual or social or cultural consciousness where you're aware of this where one is aware of this mechanism how it operates both in our psychic space and also in outside of us and in, in, in social space and and see how it see how it is and and remove yourself from the from the process because again back to the idea that it's a viral scapegoating is viral it, it takes us over and we just look for somebody to scapegoat and and yes i i do think even though i absolutely without question see that there are elements of American policing that, that do have serious problems to them. You, you still don't want to scapegoat the police as a institution. Like the, all the police are bad. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Well, you know, what I find ironic is uh, 
one of the first, if there's any sign of trouble with the same people who are attacking the police, the first words out of their mouth is call the police. And so there is this irony. So if you are ready to be hurt or somebody, so it's, it's totally irrational. I'm, I'm talking about this because I totally agree with you that it could erupt on a, on a massive scale because yes. people aren't, there's no thought anymore to what's really going. There's no, you know, uh, well, we talked about that's, Go ahead. that's another thing that, that Gerard says is, 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 I forget, it's, it's a line from his book, Violence in the Sacred. And what he says is that in order for the scapegoat or the, in order, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in cancel culture terms, in order for cancel culture to work, the people who are doing it cannot be aware of what they're doing. There, there's, right. an element of, there's an element in cancel culture where the people don't know what they're doing. Right. right. So it's like there's a there's a quote unquote unconscious element that drives the whole thing is that, you know, and they, of course, when you're in when you're involved in cancer culture, you're using all the, you know, fighting for justice and it's the sense of self-righteousness. And you're you know, you're you're doing, you know, like the good work of of um, some kind of social organization of social justice. But but yet there is something about the process that remains hidden. Like, and what the point that I make, or I try to make at least in my, in my most recent book is that beyond the technological or the political or the social conditions that structure, you know, any contemporary instance of, of cancel culture, right? There's a deeper anthropo there's a deeper anthropological level that is basically biblical, that, that goes back to this kind of primal um, feature of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be part of a human community. Well, and, exactly. and, 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 and there's something about cancel culture. And, you know, I, I think we talked about this last time, you know, so many of the world's great religions, and I, I, I think this is especially addressed in the Judeo-Christian tradition, is that cancel culture is not a, a cancel culture or scapegoating is not a not something that you want to do like it, th there's something about it that has an that's you know for lack of a better term evil so well, you, again exactly it is evil in, right and the parable you quoted last time was the best one is that they want to stone the adulteress and jesus says okay but he was without sin throw it first yes and yes hence, that's in the gospel of john that's right. that's so then he, great. That's one of the that's one of the the best critiques of cancel culture. Really, it's 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 probably the best one because it's not like that 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 story from the Gospel of John is not specifically about. It's it's not only about the moral question of adultery, whether it's right or wrong. It's about a a, a social process that culminates in a victim and in and 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 in the case of that story. It's the it's an adulterer who happens to be caught up in a moment where the the mob or the Twitter, you know, the Twitter feed in, in her community has elected her as the problem. And by stoning, the people believe that they can somehow cleanse the community. They can somehow cleanse themselves. 
But of course they can't, right? That's, that's the whole lie. The whole lie of cancel culture is that if you find a really racist person or a really whatever misogynist person or somebody that does something, you know, someone like Jeffrey Tubin does something stupid. And if you really get them, you can like somehow everything will be okay after that. Like somehow, that's right. you know, the birds will be singing and everything will yep. be, you know, exactly. it's, it, like that, like that's the, the big lie of cancel culture is that if only we could cancel this institution or this policy or this um, person, then everything will be well. And of course, when you're engaging in that kind of thought, you have to lie to yourself in 75 different ways about why it's right, why, why it'll work why there'll be there will be justice after the cancellation is done but the point is it's it's never going to work it's never ever going to work and again this is not to say i i'm i'm I, I am by no means saying that people can't make legitimate critiques or question authority or question certain no that's not what i'm saying but cancel culture like to, to scapegoat somebody as the pro as the cause of our own psychic disequilibrium is never, ever going to work. Ever. Well, you, you know, what's, what's interesting is, as I'm analyzing the, the, the virtual world, what is unlike any other time previous in history. Okay, say, let's go back to biblical times when those people were ready to stone the woman. They still had to deal with a real woman. They still had to see her looks and they still had to deal with Jesus. In, and so to do it, even though they, the first couple of rocks might have been pretty you know, difficult to throw and then get them, they saw the effects of it. They saw, you know, the blood or they saw her die. Of course. I mean, you know, like, the, I mean, that type of cancel culture was the real deal because you're, you're dealing yeah. with stones and, and you're about to. And, you know, that story is unique because it's a story where cancel culture doesn't uh, culminate itself. But I mean, you know, the whole ancient world is filled with women getting stoned and people getting burned on crosses and whatever. I mean, you know, and that, witches, I mean, can't, and Salem. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you, you you go into any historical archive of any culture and you're going to find people who have been canceled in very, very brutal ways. And I, and this is the point that I was making before, is that when all of a sudden this very, very human, all too human impulse gets transposed onto digital networks, all of a sudden the stones aren't there, the tweets are there. And That's people right. feel, it, it, they don't realize how bad it is because when you're throwing stones and you see blood, you see how bad it is, right? Right. But the other thing about it is that it, it allows it to build and build and build and build and, and, and build. It's a, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's extremely efficient. All you have to do is read something that ticks you off and all you got to oh, do yeah. is hit a few keys no i know i button. mean i yeah click a button totally and, and then this is the other process. No. oh yeah this is the so, other process and it, we saw this in the last election all right which which just horrified me to see america in 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 you know in the late in the new millennial and then here are people here are presidential candidates on, uh, on public debates over the, you know, who's going to be the next leader of, of, the, 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 of America. And they're talking about the size of, 
of their 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 members, you know, their sexual, and they're talking about who whose husband slept with whom, and and it had nothing to do with a platform or a program or of a vision. And, and I'm saying to myself, where are we in history that this is this is what people are tuning into? Well, it's it's I mean, like to your point, the entire digital apparatus, the, the entire system of, of network technology, at least from a social perspective, how it links into our phones and links into the whole, the various social media platforms. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an invitation of cancel culture because you can do it so freely. The, 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 the effects are not embodied materially, right? Because when you cancel somebody online, you're not throwing stones at them or, you know, hanging them on a cross. Um, but, but again, the emotions are there and the psychic dysfunction is there. And what seems to be happening, I, I could be wrong, but it does seem as if this technological, you know, panopticon, you could say, this, this kind of form that we've all been thrown into is generating, you know, unprecedented levels of misery and depression and anxiety and you know i was just reading about this this new uh, psychopathology called imposter syndrome which is this this relatively new term that's given to people who who feel it basically means like they feel as if they're a phony and and that of course is directly related to the reflexivity of our technology is that we 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 are losing uh, any type of because our relationship with other people is being, it's, it's essentially being transposed into this kind of hall of digital mirrors, we're losing our own sense of our own self because we discover who we are through our relationships. That, that's how we find out who we are. And exactly. when all of our relationships and when all of our relationships are being mediated by algorithms and screen technology that is highly reflexive we lose who we are and you get this epidemic of, again epidemic plague this, this viral narcissism that's infecting the capitalist world and then you get something like imposter syndrome and and, and of course if somebody is suffering from something like imposter syndrome where they where they don't think they really are who they are and they don't feel as if they can live up to other people's expectations then of course something like cancel culture will immediately appeal to them because they'll be able to discharge their right. own the sense of insecurity onto yeah. the scapegoat, on, onto the person who's being canceled. Right. They can displace whatever somebody throws at them and throw it somewhere else. But, you know, it, here's the other thing that I noticed with it. Not only is it quick to react, and I, in a few times, and, and I, I, I love what we're saying because two or three months ago, we talked about this last week. I decided... I'm getting out of this. I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I fell into it a few times and I found, I, I started to see what might happen to myself. I would wake up the next day going in hunting to pick up where I left off with that, looking for the individuals I was dueling with. And I said, this is insane. I, you know, I don't even know these people. And the other thing that I, that's, is really uh, toxic is the fact that it escalates. If you watch the, as the posts continue and people are going back and forth, it not only gets away from the issues, it gets personal. And then it's you, you are, you're a bitch. 
you're, you know, you're this, you're that. And the, the issue isn't even discussed anymore. It's, it's a total degradation of the opponent. Yeah, no, uh, it, it definitely, yeah, that's why I, I don't ever get involved with it. Um, but it, it, it does bring up all kinds from, from what I see, cause I see it sometimes, of course, you know, cause I'm on social media. So, so I see it, but it, yes, it, it brings up, uh, it descends into very base personal attacks very quickly. But of course that's, I mean, of course, because I mean, if, if you're in a bar fighting with somebody, it descends into fit, it, it, it descends into left hooks quickly. So, I mean, you know, it's that kind of emotional intensity doesn't generate, you know, rational political disc. It, do, it doesn't generate neighborly talk. It doesn't generate rational talk. It generates, emotional anger that culminates in looking for some kind of scapegoat. But, right. but again, I don't think we can blame people for doing that because that's the system that they're effectively forced to participate in. So, I right. mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a very natural reaction. I, I don't necessarily think people are bad people for doing it. I think it's, it's forced upon them and, um, well, you again, know, and, you know, we're, I, I, again, we, I said this the last time, and it, it's fun to observe uh, your posts on Facebook, though I don't go in there that often. It seems it's uh, ironic to me and it's and hysterical that every time I do go in, I see one of your posts. And, um, you know, I saw what you were saying about the vaccinations. And even then, people uh, went, for, went away from the issue vac to vaccinate and not vaccinate. Is it effective? Is it a choice? Is it a personal choice? They went, they started to, they wanted to label you as either anti-vaccine. They wanted to go deeper and, 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 and approach, you know, attack you and, you know, and you handle it extremely well. But, yeah, I mean, that, that stuff doesn't really bother me. People attack me all no, the time. I know, but, 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 but that's the process. That's what, when they can't be, be, deal with you intellectually they have to get personal but what sure, again sure. i think what we i think the point we have to make and you may want to wrap this up soon because we we chewed through some beautiful moments here but um again we want to emphasize to the listener that the only way out first of all the immediate way out is to to stop catch take hold of yourself and stop but the second way is to realize that we have to move, like you said, I, we brought it up the last time, the difference between what, what are you going to put your attention on? You're going to put your attention on code or are you going to put, put your attention on the song of the shaman? You know, are you going to go, you know, fall more and more into the, the technical and become less human? Or are you going to become more spiritual and evolve? And I think that's the, the gauntlet that's being thrown down right now. If, and, and how is an imposter going to connect to himself other than to take a good spiritual look at what he is or she is? Sure, sure. You know, the, the, these are important questions, no doubt about it. Um, and you know, these are, I don't, the, I mean, these are difficult like, questions. Well, these I are did, difficult. I, yeah, well, you know, I, you know, it's a favorite uh, observation of mine that we, um, you know, we started this way back with gentrification when we noticed that there's this almost zombie-like uh, behavior and uh, lack of self-consciousness, you know, that goes along with shutting not only people out, but shutting sounds out, you know, uh, just 
filling your head with whatever your particular music is and not caring what goes on in the streets, et cetera. So people becoming numb, more and more numb and more and more distant from each other. And of course, I talked about uh, Scrooge that after watching four or five uh, versions of Christmas Carol, I recognized what I had seen in South Boston, this insulated, this separate, um, almost a, a, like Scrooge, and a, an intentional distancing from any other human being. He wasn't going to celebrate with them. He had no sense of, uh, of being selflessness. He, everything was selfish. And he created, he lived by himself. And I saw the patterns that seemed very similar to what I noticed in South Boston, that a lot of those people were becoming more and more. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I, I think I think that that we do live in a in a you know I, I don't know if I go as far as to say a Scrooge society but I I think that um, that ca I, capitalism as a system does produce a kind of Scrooge like archetype for many people because your life becomes entirely focused on economic productivity and personal optimization and you lose contact with the other you lose contact with community and when you look at Dickens novella about Scrooge I mean it's a great moral because what, what you know not to get into the whole thing but I mean what you're dealing with basically is a person who is completely cut off from otherness his entire life is around is is entirely centered around around money basically right which is around capitalist product productivity and you know through his encounter with these four ghosts Jacob his, his former business partner, uh, Jacob Marley, and the, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, he discovers otherness, right? He, he discovers that other people have pain and suffer and they love. And, you know, and, and that's the, the miracle of, of, of the story is that when he wakes up on Christmas morning, he discovers that other people are alive and he wants to engage with them and he wants to help them. And, he, and that's why he, you know, for his clerk, what was his clerk's name? Ratchet. Um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And, the, and the clerk's son, Tiny Tim, he, he wants to help. So, I mean, that's, again, Scrooge is a, certainly a person in, engaging in cancel culture. He's not paying his staff. He's, he's hoarding money. He's not paying attention to other people. And then through his awakening, through his encounter with otherness, he discovers, for lack of a better word, love. He discovers um, well, a desire it, it, to help other joy. people. And you know, and that, when we, when we talked about... And, and that, that's the real antidote to cancel culture, is cancel culture is a... Again, you can cloak it in all these different terms you want, social justice. And again, I, I am all for social justice. I, I want to be clear about that. Um, but you can cloak it in all these different terms, you know, justice and, and all, all, all these different you know, catchphrases that are, you know, sociological lingo or, or, um, you know, Twitter, Twitter discourse or the CNN embassy, whatever you want to cloak it in. But ultimately cancel culture is a, is a process of hate, really. It's a process of, exactly. of ex ex expunging otherness. And the antidote to cancel culture is an encounter with otherness. It's an encounter with community and it's, it's an encounter really with the idea that our own subjective and psychic life is formed through some kind of exchange with the others, that we become ourselves only by recognizing and engaging with other people and realizing that other people form us. Like we're, 
you know, I'm, I'm very, well, even though know, I'm sympathetic to, to some libertarian ideas, I'm, I'm very anti-libertarian in many ways in the sense that I don't believe that a person exists only in like, I don't exist, like believe that the human soul is like this encased thing. I, I believe that the like it's just like an individual and nothing else. I, I believe that our, you know, our self or our soul is is a result of our encounters with other people. It's a it's a process. It's a dialectical process. And and I think cancel culture doesn't quite realize that it's it's a very it's a very selfish philosophy in many ways because it's it, it tries to Absolutely. cure itself by scapegoating other people. Um, but, but anyway, I, I think that's well, a, one a, good, one of, a good spot here. Yeah, it is. Actually, I just want to, there's one other, I want to point out the last time we did talk about Scrooge, you, you made a brilliant distinction between happiness and being merry. And you talked sure, about sure, sure. Yeah, that, right. And you wanted to pick up on that because I, I mean, I know what well, I want. Go ahead. Well, I, mean, I, 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 you know, the, the, there's a big difference between happiness and merriness, a huge difference a, a happiness. And this is why happiness is a state that references simply how we feel. It's, it's, it's a very selfish, you know, when we think of how we don't think of happiness being a selfish thing, but it, it is in a way because it, it references simply our own emotional state and, and nothing else. And this is why I think, you know, contemporary American society is absolutely obsessed with being happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to feel happy. But merriness is something different. And, and you know, merriness is a, it's almost like a vibration that radiates from you where you're not so much uh, interested in your own sense of happiness, but it's a, it's a social, a state of social being of, of bringing happiness, for lack of a better term, to other people. You know, merriment, merriment. This is why we say Merry Christmas, because it's a social phenomenon. We walk in the street, Merry Christmas, you know, and, you know, back in the old days where there were Christmas markets and all, all the, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a ambiance or environment of merriment, of, of merriment. And happiness is not an ambiance or, an, or a social environment. It's a, it's a, it's a hyper subjective state of personal satisfaction and personal fulfillment. So I, I do think that we, we certainly have to move away from our obsession with wanting to be happy towards a, a movement of, of merriment, of, of being merry, of joking and laughing and, and being happy together, you know, because that's, that's really what, 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 what merriment is or being, on, being merry, you know? Right. And on that note, I think, I mean, just think of the shift that we've taken. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of a sudden less cancel culture and more merriment um indeed because cancel culture is not merry at all it's it's extraordinarily miserable and extraordinarily cynical and i don't think anyone that does it is very happy right so you know a a, a merry so, culture would not cancel people it would forgive people right it would say okay you made a mistake you know not you know just <laughs> try not to do that again you know that's that's what a merry person would do exactly well i hope that you know our listeners uh you know, we'll see the shift and it, it just, uh, it's so great to be able to 
to close on that note that, that instead, you know, I, I started to say to people, you know, what is it, what is on a person's mind that, that when they wake up in the morning, the best they can do with that day. And this happened last summer was to dig up some dirt on Abraham Lincoln enough to uh, incite them enough to go down and <laughs> take down his statue. I mean, is that the best you can put out into the world? Um, sure. You know, <laughs> why not go out and, you know, uh, volunteer at a hospital or a food bank or, or do something maybe a little more merry. Uh, so anyway, on that point, uh, again, brilliant, Brian. It's a joy to talk to you and uh, to analyze. I think, you know, hopefully we make a dent and, and show people that there's another way. Uh, first of all, shut it down. Uh, don't engage. You know, take a it's, break. It's never going to get shut down. It's a cancel culture is a is a feature of society since since right. You know, we were well, what I mean, shut down, down is on an on an individual level. You know, yes, do yourself yeah. a favor. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Exactly. Yes, well, let's right, uh, let's pick this up let's again. Go. And uh, all right, thank you. I appreciate all it. All right, Tom. Good, good talking to you, brother. All right, peace. Bye.